Let us pray. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, this is it. The end. There is no more. Abyss. One nil. Finito. Sorry for the drama. Just wanted to get your attention because this just means that we are the end of our church-wide self-pulpit series, Love People. This is the final sermon, and we hope that you have found it useful to learn about the Alilons, the one and others, in conjunction with our workbook, Authentic Relationships. And we hope that ourselves and all those who are participating will press on to finish the workbook, though we round off the preaching today with the final two Alilons that we present. Prayer, pray and submit. <clears throat> Not necessarily in that order. So let's get to it. Ah, I must tell you, something funny, peculiar, I think Mandarinese call it Tiguai, uh, happened to me in prepping this sermon. Monday night as I was about to fall asleep and thinking uh, what to say to begin the sermon, this thought came to mind. This is who we are. This is what we do. Well, so I figured, okay, tomorrow I will use search engine to look it up and fell asleep. So Tuesday I Google, this is who we are, this is what we do, to see, you know, which great sage or great heroic person uh, might have said it. Well, what a letdown. Uh, most of the results said it was either a pop song or a rap. Even Katy Perry uh, has her own version, which states, this is how we do. I'm not sure that's very good English. <clears throat> and the only person that I found who says this in some fashion is the great Rambo. Anybody here doesn't know who Rambo is? You all know, right? Okay. In Rambo 4, the fourth Rambo movie, Things about rescuing some Christian missionaries in Myanmar or something. Uh, this scene, you can look at it up for yourself in YouTube. Rambo says, this is what, this is, he, he turns it around. This is what we do, who we are, live for nothing, die for something, your call. Well, uh, by the way, one of the three pastors' <clears throat> nickname is Rambo. I won't tell you who. I'm sworn to confidentiality, but you can try and guess. Anyway, <clears throat> keep that thought. This is who we are. This is what we do. Actually, when we talk about pray and submit to one another, this is actually a double couplet, so to speak. So here I confess I do not quite agree with the way authentic relationships groups some of the one another's, but that's a small matter. Seems to me that confess and pray go together, as do submit and serve. So let's look at, first look at submit and serve. Seems to me that true Christian service to one another happens only when we have learned to submit to one another. Let me say that again. True Christian service to one another only happens when we have first learned to submit to one another. And <clears throat> I'd like to tell you why this sermon is entitled all the other one another's. 
Besides those that we have not been able to cover uh, in the sermons or even the book, because there are too many, there are a couple of other one another's that need to be highlighted. So please note, first of all, Jesus actually practiced himself all the one another's we find in the Bible. And he also actually gave instructions for one particular alelon we seldom practice. And if we do, it's only symbolically. If you look at John chapter 13, verses 12 to 15, we know that after this incident, which we should all know about, when Jesus washed his disciples' feet, this is what he told them. John records, when he, Jesus, had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example so that you should do just as I've done to you. Now, these instructions, seems to me, are almost as specific as those for Holy Communion, which we celebrate today. And yet, while we do the sacrament regularly, as instructed, this washing of one another's feet, we almost never do it. And when we ever do it, it's usually symbolic. Uh, sometimes uh, I've seen people do it with wet ones. That's how symbolic it can become. But we need to know that in washing the disciples' feet, Jesus embodies submission and serving. He embodies submission and serving. The submission and serving alelons, one another's. This attests to the fact of how important they actually are. seems to me that after the love one another, which by the way follows at the end of chapter 13 and John, these two possibly rank two and three in importance. So, say again, eh? to truly serve one another, we need to learn how to first submit to one another. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 22, Paul writes, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, then wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. I know I've always upset some wives, just hang on, that's another sermon altogether. I'm not going to broach that today, so shelve it, okay? <clears throat> but how significant is it for Paul to write, before he says, wives submit, he says first, you need to submit to one another, the mutual submission. That means husbands need to submit to their wives too. Now, husbands are angry, but never mind. God said it. That settles it. Mutual submission is a very hard lesson to learn because we all believe in hierarchies. We believe in one, two, three, four. Um, this story comes from American football. Many of us don't understand it, but never mind. Um, I learned it when I was there studying 30 over years ago. But this very famous quarterback, Bart Starr, from the Green Bay Packers, was describing to a group of businessmen how his coach, the legendary Vince Lombardi, held absolute power. Um, 
He said, if you enter Vince's office, you will see a large desk and an impressive organizational chart behind. And this is what the organizational chart looks like. Not quite like that, but on the top, there's a small box, you see, and it says Vince Lombardi, head coach and general manager. And the line and the big box is just everyone else. That's Vince Lombardi's idea of an organizational chart. This is how all of us are inclined. It's part of our DNA, if you like. But the Bible says we need to learn to submit to each other, all of us. Some people cannot understand this. They cannot understand how it could be possible that we need not only <clears throat> to submit to others, but actually to everybody else in the church. Everyone needs to submit to everyone else. There's this true story uh, I read a long time ago in Reader's Digest. A lady called Aurora tells of a deeply religious auntie who was experiencing a particularly troubled time. In trying to console the aunt, Aurora said, you know, at least uh, you're, you can be sure that your place in heaven is assured. It's, it's, it's okay. Then the auntie replies, I don't know, I think I'm overqualified. <laughs> like that, how to submit to others. But, as we learn true submission, we will also learn true service. Let me give you two real-life examples. John Murray, if you search, was a very famous theologian who taught at Princeton University and who helped to found Westminster Theological Seminary, where he taught himself. So, very famous guy. Christian leader, he decided to go to spend a short time at the Iona community. Now, Iona is a small, small island, a sacred island, if you like, off Scotland. Historians believe that this is the first place in the British Isles that Christian missionaries came. He went there with many others to rebuild the ruins of the monastery that surrounded the abbey. Great historical significance. And he was eager to share the work. Imagine uh, with his distress this, this when, after all the jobs had been assigned to those to make cement, to bring the bricks, to bring in the timber and all that, he was told, this great theologian, you will help wash the dishes. And all he could think of was those smelly, fishy tins, plates coated with porridge because that's what they ate. But it slowly dawned on him that as the weeks went by, when the walls, that the walls could not be built unless someone did the cooking and the dishwashing for those who had the skills to do the building. One job, one service made the other services possible. And dishwashers helped to build the Iona Monastery just as much as the stonemasons the carpenters, and other skilled people. This is true submission and service. The other story comes from China, when the communists just took over. The author, Vaughn's Rees, tells about, uh, in his book, The Jesus Family in Communist China. This community is called Jesus Family. And when the communists took over, they boasted, of course, uh, of their achievements. They said, among us, there are no leaders. We are all comrades. 
So one typical communist group, according to Von Sries, uh, came to visit the Jesus family. And they demanded to see the pastor. The author who was present said, I saw him at a distance and he was pushing the manure cart and he pushed it right into their midst before someone said, this is our pastor. No, manure in China is not the polite kind, right? It is true human or animal organic substance with its accompanying uh, noxious odours, if you want to put it that way. So, of course, the communists immediately drew back from this offensive uh, cart. And then they demanded to know how he, as a leader, could keep adequate discipline when he did such a menial job. And the pastor, whose name was Chao Xin Ming, explained that since, as Christians, they were all equal, he, as leader, had the privilege of doing the worst jobs. This is biblical submission and service to one another, the Alelo. But, um, ah, okay, listen to Martin Luther, who said, a Christian is the most free of all and subject to none, most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. But Luther is only echoing what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 to 15. Paul writes, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Here, we are reminded of another set of one another's. These are the do not alelons. So far we see the do alelons. We say love one another, teach, serve, even admonish or provoke. But here Paul tells us of three other one another's we are not to do. Do not bite, do not devour, do not consume. The others like do not lie to one another. You can look it up. Please do. So there are the do alelons or one another's and there are the do not alelons and one another's. So do submit and serve one another's. Okay, now the pray alelon. More appropriately, confess and pray. And the reference of course is James 5. 16, and James writes, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. Now, the confess part has already been dealt with. I just need to point out that in the New Testament, the word translated confess is very broad in meaning. And could also be translated, agree with, assent, declare, acknowledge, even praise. It is the same word that's used when the Bible says we confess Jesus Christ as Lord. So it seems to me that when James writes about to confess our sins to one another, 
The emphasis is not so much confessing individual sins as much as to acknowledge our own sinfulness and therefore the need for prayer. But the one another part is more crucial. Why confess to one another? The late David Watson in his book Disciple says this, and please, this, this one must listen carefully. David Watson writes, This acknowledgement of sin in the presence of another brother is a safeguard against self-deception. It is a curious fact that it is invariably easier to confess our sins privately to a holy and sinless God than openly to an unholy and sinful brother. If that is true, we must ask ourselves whether we have not often been deceiving ourselves with our confession of sin to God, whether we have not rather been confessing our sins to ourselves instead, and also granting ourselves forgiveness. And is this not the reason, perhaps, why? Uh, reason for our countless relapses and the feebleness of our Christian obedience to be found precisely in the fact that we are living on self-forgiveness and not real forgiveness. Self-forgiveness and not real forgiveness. So we are called to real forgiveness, not self-forgiveness. Do we know the difference? Now, I cannot remember the source of this story, but this is a testimony of real forgiveness, James 5.16 style. We are told in the US, um, a man came back to his workplace from which he had been dismissed, fired several months previously. And suddenly his work was superly superior, super good. So a fellow worker who remembered how bad or inconsistent was he was had been in the past asked, what happened? What, uh, why the difference? So the man shared his story, his testimony. He said, when I was in college, as part of a fraternity initiation committee, um, okay, fraternity initiation is a polite way of my time or my father's time, call it ragging. Uh, then there is uh, what? Uh, orientation activities. Uh, all this polite and real. Uh -huh. Or hazing even, it's called. Anyway, theirs was a bit more creative. Huh? He said, we placed the new members in the middle of a long stretch of a country road. I was to drive my car at a great speed straight at them. The challenge was, them, challenge was for them to stand firm until a signal was given to jump out of the way. It was a dark night. He had reached one, I had reached 100 miles an hour and saw the looks of terror in the headlights. Their looks of terror. The signal was given and everyone jumped clear, except one boy. I left college after that. He says he later married and had two children. But the look of that boy's face, he continues, as I passed over him at 100 miles an hour, stayed in my mind all the time. I became hopelessly inconsistent, moody, and finally became a problem drinker. My wife had to work to bring in the only income we had. I was drinking at home one morning when someone rang the doorbell. I opened to find myself facing a woman who seemed strangely familiar. She sat down in our living room and 
told me that she was the mother of the boy I had killed years before. She said that she had hated me and spent agonizing nights rehearsing ways to get revenge. And then listen as she told me of the love and forgiveness that had come to her when she gave her heart to Christ. She said, I've come to let you know that I forgive you and I want you to forgive me. She looked into, I looked into her eyes that morning and I saw deep in her eyes the permission, the permission to be the kind of man I might have been had I never killed that boy. That forgiveness changed my whole life. Confess your sin to one another so that you may be healed. Some of us here need to hear this. To seek real forgiveness. That confession and the prayer that brings wholeness. But the confession, of course, is one part of the alelon. The other is the pray for one another because as James puts it, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working or more accurately, which I think is a better translation, the effective prayer of a righteous person has great power. So that's quite straightforward. We pray for one another so that God can heal us and make us whole. And this is the second and final testimony. I heard this story from a fellow pastor many years ago. And uh, it is about a mother's prayer for her infant son. The mother shares uh, that when her son was three months old, a baby, he, she, she, uh, he was discovered to have a cataract, cataract in both eyes and therefore was not seen very well. Normally, cataracts are old people, right? But this one is a baby. Surgery to remove the cataract was scheduled and immediately, uh, had to be scheduled immediately because if not, any further delay, the baby might not gain sight. The day before the surgery, she awakened very early. Her mind was troubled. She was tired physically, mentally, and emotionally, understandable. As she read her Bible, God led her to Matthew 9.27. The passage is about Jesus healing a blind man. And as she read, she felt as though God was saying that everything would be alright. And the passage gave her faith. Surgery was successful, and the sun was fitted with contact lenses. Imagine a baby with contact lenses. However, one month later, the doctors discovered that her son was suffering a detached retina in the left eye. That is to say, the connection between the brain and the eye had uh, been broken, and the eye was therefore technically useless, dead. Furthermore, she was told that the eye would have to be removed, the eyeball, and replaced with a glass eye which had to be changed every three months as the baby grew until he became an adult um, and stopped growing. So surgery to correct this problem was an alternative, but the chances, she was told, were very, very slim because of his age. To make matters worse, if nothing was done, in a few years the dead eye would shrink and cause severe facial distortion. 
Well, this news shocked her. The surgery was successful after all. Why should such a thing happen to her precious only child, she thought. The future seemed very bleak. For the next few weeks, she went through life like a robot and just doing things mechanically. Her mind was on the condition of her son. Every night, she, uh, when the baby had gone to sleep, she would stand beside the cot and pray. One night, while she was laboring in prayer, she opened her eyes and she saw a strange thing. It was her baby's body being raised a few inches as though someone was lifting it, an invisible hand, and then putting it down back on the bed. Now, she thought she was going mad, losing her mind, or at the very least hallucinating. But that night, the depression that she had carried, the burden, disappeared. It was as if the great weight she had been lugging around for this many weeks was suddenly gone and filled with peace. A few days later, she took the son for a second opinion. The doctor informed her that, you know, there was a slight chance that the eye might heal on its own. He advised her not to do anything but to wait and see. And cut a long story short, weeks later, when the doctors examined the son under general anesthesia, they could not believe what they saw. One doctor said to her, I don't know how to explain this, but your son's eye is completely healed. So her thoughts went back to that night when she realized it was Jesus standing by her. She knew that whatever the doctors explained, it was Jesus who had healed her son. That's why the Bible says, pray for one another to be healed. And this is the prayer alone at its best. Okay? So that's it. End of series. But hopefully not the end of our own studies and obedience. And as we come today for the sacrament of Holy Communion, God's means of grace for us, let us ask God for the grace to love people, to love one another, so that all will know that we are Christ's disciple. Why? The who we are still in your mind? Why? Because that is who we are. We are Christ followers, disciples of Jesus. And this is what we do. We love one another as Christ has loved us. Why? Because that is who we are. That is what we do. Let us pray. Dear God, our Father, we ask your forgiveness when um, we ignore the one another's to our own spiritual peril. When we forget who we are. When we forget what we are to do. We pray that in this time of Holy Communion, you will not only remind us, but grant us grace to be Christ's followers. To love one another as you have loved us, so that we will love people as you have commanded. Because that is who we are. That is 
we do.